0: I have been asked today to talk about the apparent paradox of a professor writing mystery novels. However, I am very far from the only one who has tried to combine these two fields. One thinks of the distinguished British scholar J.I.M. Stewart, who writes mysteries under the name of Michael Innes. And then there is his near namesake, Helen McInnes, who was at least related by marriage to the profession as the wife of Gilbert Hyatt the classical scholar at Columbia. And in a sense, perhaps the combination of the two is only natural. After all, dedicated scholars are forever trying to sift evidence, fit the pieces together, arrive at the whole truth about this or that person or work from the past. And after all, we have many classical precedents. In a sense, Oedipus was the first mystery plot which 2,500 years ago used the decidedly novel gimmick of having the detective turn out to be the murderer. And as Rex Stout, the Dean of um, Living American Mystery Writers, has observed, among classical novelists, Jane Austen, the past mistress of the misleading psychological touch, would have made an excellent mystery novelist. For the past few decades, it has been fashionable among critics to deride the well-made plot the one in which every detail fits. And yet, after all, this wasn't scorned by the Greeks, by the 17th century French writers, nor by Ibsen, nor in our own time by Lillian Hellman or Arthur Miller, whose most recent play, The Price, is certainly well made. Uh, Possibly the answer to critics like that is to say, don't knock it till you've tried it. For any writer, I should think the task of trying to construct a well-made plot would be extremely good discipline. It certainly gives one a uh, sense of tight structure. And by definition, of course, the mystery has to be the most tightly knit structure of all. There can be no room for digressions or side issues. To a certain type of mind, it is as fascinating as doing a double-chrostic puzzle. But in addition to the puzzle plot, which is the basis of any mystery, it is usually desirable, particularly in modern times when mysteries come out every year by the hundreds, uh, to combine it with some particular milieu, some area or field or specialty which the writer knows a good deal about, whether it's stamp collecting or ballet or the inner workings of Parliament or some such specialized field. In my case, although my previous four novels were all novels of manners, realistic stories, of middle-class Irish-American life, what gave the basis for flashback, my one mystery, which was a double-day crime club selection of last year, was my lifelong interest in films, not a professional interest, it was only as a fan, but I happened to be born at just the period when I could remember silent movies, when they were going out and Tonkies were coming in, And actually, Flashback started out years ago as a straight novel, one that I hoped would capture some of the glamour of the late silent era, uh, particularly the extraordinary impact of German films and directors and stars on Hollywood in that era, the uh, Germans associated with the UFA studios, commonly known as UFA. And what fascinated me was what happened when talkies came, when so many of these glamorous careers were finished overnight, the stars who had been the among the highest paid in Hollywood in 1927 and 28 by 1930, were virtually forgotten. On the other hand, the directors whose accents didn't matter frequently went on forever. So over the years, a group of characters began to grow more and more real in my mind. One was a spectacular German star, someone on the level of Garbo or Polo Negri or Vilma Banky, whom I called Magda Carlo. And then there was the great director who discovered her, just as Lubin Negri, as Marit Stiller discovered Garbo, as von Sternberg discovered Dietrich, whom I called Max Landau. Uh, he would be comparable with uh, some of these men I just mentioned, or with Fred Zinnemann, or Billy Wilder, or Fritz Lang, whose careers have lasted indefinitely although they all started at UFA. And then also, I had in mind a type of Hollywood actress who has, as far as I know, it never been represented elsewhere in fiction, the flapper star of the late 20s, who by sheer persistence managed to make her career last right on at least through the 1950s. Example, uh, Joan Crawford, Merna Loy, Loretta Young, Jean Arthur, Mary Astor, all of whom are still familiar names, some of whom are even now familiar names, then for purposes of my plot, I also introduced Juan Madero, the last of the Latin lovers, a forgotten star of the period of the late 20s when every studio in Hollywood was grooming its own equivalent or attempted uh, substitute for Valentino, none of whom ever lasted except possibly Gilbert Roland. Uh, then, to a figure who was once extremely important to Hollywood, which is, who has is now practically vanished, the gossip columnist whom I call uh, Flora Baxter, however, as a straight novel, none of this seemed ever to jow. It it, it simply did not uh, cohere, so it occurred to me that if I devised a mystery involving these people, particularly if I sent it decades later with motivations going back to that silent era, perhaps it might be viable. Although at the time that I started writing it, it was set in the present. Time continued to march on, and now the main period setting of 1958 is already 12 years in the past. But I think what perhaps has given the novel the interest it seemed to have for many readers and reviewers was the extended flashback to Hollywood in May 1929 on the eve of the first Oscar Awards, just when the threat of talkies was beginning to menace some of the great silent names. Throughout the book, I dropped a great many real names, such as those that I recently mentioned, mingled right in with the fictional in order to give a pseudo-documentary effect. I felt that I had succeeded when the assistant to Larry Ashmead of the Doubleday Crime Club in acknowledging the manuscript actually thought it was a true story with only the names changed. Equally pleasing was the review in the New York Times Sunday Book Review, which said that the book had achieved an admirable era similitude. If so, this came mainly, I suppose, not from any research I had to do, but just from my lifelong familiarity, familiarity with the movies. Rather than merely indicating the leading characters were successful film people, I worked out each of their careers in complete detail, even to the titles of their fictitious films, which represent actual trends and cycles of the period, for instance, Magda Carlo, makes her greatest head in 1928 in a film called Sins of the Flesh. Both of these words were extraordinarily popular in titles of those days. Example, uh, Flesh and the Devil with Garbo and Gilbert, The Way of All Flesh with Emil Jannings, The World and the Flesh with Miriam Hopkins and George Bancroft, Sins of the Fathers with Jannings again, The Redeeming Sin with Dolores Costello, The Sin of Madeleine Claudet* with Helen Hayes and so on. Likewise, Faye Winston, the flapper starlet and wampus baby of 1929, scores most heavily in a jazz age film called Dancing Wives, which echoes such contemporary, whither are we drifting dramas as Our Dancing Daughters, Dancing Mothers, and Foolish Wives. In the same vein, Francine, the theme song of Over There, the disastrous early talkie, World War Romance, which finishes Magda Carlo's American career, parallels such song hits of the period as Charmaine, Diane, and Janine, all supposedly sung to waiting French girls by their soldier lovers. The lyrics, which were as intentionally inane as possible, exactly uh, uh, reflect those trends. Example, the chorus goes, When we stroll by that old river Seine, Sweet Francine, Did you know you'd be waiting in vain? Petite Francine, as we kiss neat that Picardy moon, shy Francine, I swore I'd come back to you soon, my Francine, and so on. This is the kind of little touch, of course, which may well be lost on the average reader, but it does add a dimension of interest and fun for the dedicated movie buff, of whom fortunately there seem to be more all the time. In order to keep such trivia from slowing the narrative down or spoiling it for the uninformed reader, Most of them were used, most of these precise details were used as clues in the ultimate solution of the mystery. As in any mystery, the reader never realizes until the end which details were the truly significant ones. Ever since Poe, this is, I suppose, the keynote in constructing a mystery, to plan it backwards from the solution with all the necessary facts mentioned, but so well concealed among others that the reader is constantly encouraged to mislead himself. Since completing Flashback, which will be published in paperback early in 1971 by Pyramid Books, I have been working on another novel, not a mystery, but I suppose, once having tasted blood, so to speak, I will want to go back for more, considering all the acrimony, infighting, And backstage politics that rage in every college faculty, those in New York not accepted. Perhaps my next mystery should involve murder in one of the units of the City University of New York. The background is not as glamorous as Silent Hollywood. On the other hand, it would be timely and maybe even richer in long smoldering issues that sooner or later explode in violence. As an example of the kind of thing i mean that was really the basis for the whole novel possibly i could uh, quote a bit from the book itself the hero who tells the story in the first person is a young man from new york named joel goodman who works for a f- declining indeed failing fan magazine called Filmfare, just about to go out of business as of the fall of 1958 in this scene after having found the body of juan madero the once great latin star dead a uh, young Goodman goes to speak with Max Landau, who was still one of Hollywood's great directors, uh, to try to get him to remember something about the period nearly 30 years before, which may contain these seeds for the mystery. And this is Landau reminiscing of Hollywood in 1929. He says, It was just before the first Academy Awards were announced. We didn't start calling them Oscars until some years after that. It was run differently then, not according to the calendar year. The first ones were for the years 1927 and 28, my first two years in Hollywood, and a star could get separate nominations for separate pictures. Janet Gaynor had three going for her, Seventh Heaven, Street Angel, and Sunrise. Gloria Swanson was nominated for Sadie Thompson, and Magda Carlo for Sins of the Flesh, our second American film. Our fourth, Infatuation, don't blame me for those titles, had just opened at Grauman's Chinese. After the premiere, Magda threw a party that was quite a party, even for those days. Every big star's house had to have a name then, Pickfair, Falcon's Lair, and the like. Magda called hers Heimat, not only because in German it means home, but because Sudermann's play of that name, which we hoped one day to film, is in English known as Magda. For this occasion, she had all the downstairs rooms cleared for dancing to the best jazz orchestra. She'd had the players flown down from San Francisco, She'd ordered enough bootleg champagne to fill the swimming pool, only that was all covered with orchids. Not that that stopped anyone who wanted to from jumping in. Everyone was there that night, from Alice Joyce to Zazu Pitts, both Gish's, the three Talmud sisters, and all the Princess Medvani, and whoever they were married to that year. Even Douglas Farbanks and Mary Pickford had promised to bring their house guest, an English Duke. Ah, Mr. Goodman, how can I convey to you how it was then when the whole world came to Hollywood instead of vice versa? Then Joel takes up the narrative. Joel Goodman. He says, I could picture the scene vividly enough, and not just from later reconstructions, however painstaking, but from the actual jazz-age films I'd seen, which captured that decade as no other had ever been captured before. I could see the men with slicked-back hair and bell bottom trousers, even on their tuxedos, the girls with short bobs tossing and bead fringe flying about their knees in a furious Charleston or varsity drag, I could hear the jazz, the saxophones, moaning, and the syncopated beat that generation loved, playing music like I'd heard at the Magic Lantern, only not tinny the way it sounds on old records now, not even wistful and nostalgic, but gay and peppy, especially the songs from pictures currently in production or release. You Were Meant For Me, Wedding of the Painted Dolls and the Title Song from the Broadway Melody, Pagan Love Song from the Pagan, Am I Blue from On With the Show, Louise from Innocence of Paris. Precious Little Thing Called Love from The shop Angel, Janine from Lilac Time, and Singing in the Rain from Hollywood Review of 1929. Since finishing Flashback, which will be out in paperback for a pyramid book sometime early in 1971, I've been working on another mystery, another novel rather, not a mystery, but I suppose having once tasted blood, so to speak, I will want to go back for more, considering all the acrimony, infighting, backstage politics that rage through any college faculty, those in New York not accepted. Perhaps my next mystery, if any, should involve murder in one of the units of the City University of New York. The background, to be sure, is not as glamorous as Silent Hollywood. On the other hand, it would be timely and maybe even richer in long smoldering issues that sooner or later explode in violence.